listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome to the show. I am excited to introduce today's guest, which is Richard Beck. Uh, I am a believer in trying to give short introductions, particularly when people have a lot of accolades, and Richard is one of those. So let me just say in summary that he's the professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. He's also a widely respected and sought-after blogger and speaker, and he's written multiple books. All I can say about Richard is um, you can read any of his books, and you'll be in for both a really good time and a really provocative experience. Uh, Pick up anything that he's ever written, because I just love the way this guy thinks. I had a really good time with him on the show, and I hope you enjoy uh, the interview. So, uh, Richard, you you wrote quite openly on your blog about uh, gender equality and some of the unique challenges at Highland Church of Christ. And what I really appreciated about it is that you posted in 2012 why you were sharing your opinion about gender equality and why you had chosen to um, not lead or preach or offer services until the church was fully um, integrated. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing about this post was how you updated it in 2018 because the church had invited you to become an elder and you then sought the wisdom of particularly some women in your in your life, your wife, for example. I'm bringing all this background for people who may not know this story. Mm-hmm. What it struck for me that I'd love to hear from you about is just the tension between when you take a stand from the outside and when you choose to join in and reform from the inside. And just maybe some insight from you on that decision and how you made it and how it's going. Well, I mean, I think it's a lot of decisions that a lot of us navigate in our small and big ways. Um, and for me, uh, the first the first season of that discernment was asking permission uh, from my wife and from other women, and said, "I, I can sit this one on the sit this conversation out on the outside in solidarity with you." Um, and you know, insert my voice from the outside of the leadership roles of my church, um, or um, having give, been, been given this invitation to be an elder, to be uh, on the inside of the conversation, go go on the inside and represent those voices on the inside. Um, the concern, I think, with that is that you know you don't know how those conversations are going to go, and you're going to once you kind of enter in the inside of the system, you have to honor that system and be a team player and honor the, the democracy of how those decisions are going to be made. And when we haven't quite yet reached that season of discernment yet. And so there is a lot of anxiety. And I think you talk about that on this podcast going into those, the season coming up, I can see lots of anxiety on both sides of the issue. So my church is kind of a semi egalitarian. We're not quite fully egalitarian across all leadership roles. And so I, uh, as we get nearer to it, you can see the church getting a little nervous, the leaders themselves getting a little nervous. I'm a little nervous about it all. And, and mainly because I want to be authentic and transparent, but I also want to listen well. And I, I and also realize that my voice isn't the only voice. And that's a hard balance because especially when you, you're talking about something you feel very passionately about. And so I don't know if you have talked a lot about on the podcast about the Ignatian practices of indifference, praying before you go into the season of discernment to be indifferent, to not just grind your own acts or represent your own view. And so that is kind of what our leaders have been trying 
to do and pray towards is a, is a stance of indifference before we go into the season of discernment. And that's a hard thing for me because I am hardly indifferent on many issues, <laughs> strong opinions about things. So that's a hard prayer. Well, and Richard, let's jump in on that because I, if I recall, I think you just recently blogged on the Ignatian a stance mm-hmm. of indifference, like in the last week or so, if I remember right. Yes, that's right. Um, I, I think our listeners will need some explanation on that because when you first hear indifference, it sounds like it means you don't care. But actually, this is something quite different. Yeah, in the Ignatian practices, indifference means to uh, stand in a posture of discernment before decisions or choices that you make. So it's not indifferent in the sense of I don't care about these choices. It's not being apathetic, but it is indifferent to the outcomes. And so as I stand at a fork in the road, I want to be indifferent to both outcomes so I can not prematurely decide or preemptively decide but create a space for discernment. So for an Ignatian practices, it's, it's about creating that space of uh, discernment that needs to be carved out. And that means one has to kind of step back from preferred outcomes because then you're never really going to discern properly. You're going to try to force your, force your agenda through rather than listen and take all the data in. And that's the hard part with uh, being a leader of a church is because we have a church about, 2000 members. And and so as you can imagine, once you get to that size, there's factions, it's a, it's a republic of interests and views. And there are parts of that church that I don't know. Well, I can't know 2000 people as my best friends. And so I need to create a, a space where I can be in relationship and I can listen to their concerns about what we're uh, thinking about and talking about before I decide what's the right thing to do. And again, that's the hard part of the practice because you're going into the process with an agenda with what you think is the right thing to do. And somehow you're going to have to check that to listen well. That's really fascinating. The other thing that strikes me is um, when the church called you to become an elder, they knew very well you had been very public about your stance. So that speaks a lot to their integrity as well, that they would invite you on knowing that. They know what they're getting, right? Yeah, and I think uh, they saw other things. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, working out at a prison. People who follow my blog or my writings know I'm very involved in prison ministry, and I'm also very involved at a mission church plant of the of the main campus where we walk alongside people on the economic margins of our town. So lots of homeless friends and people with addictions, and I spend a lot of time there. And I think it's actually those ministries that that led to the call. Um, they knew I had opinions about this other issue, but they they saw a pastoral heart um, uh, or uh, I mean, I'm trying to cultivate a pastoral, but they saw those past that pastoral presence. And that's why I got called. Um, but the, and so uh, this other opinion about women's leadership and women's roles was I think they knew they were going to get that. But I was called for these other pastoral purposes and and that, again, that was a discernment for me as well, because I didn't want to go into the leadership as a one-issue person. Um, I wanted to be called to um, the, the leadership role for why I was called and to continue in those ministries uh, and, and and not just be in there as like a guided missile to, to, to kind of work this one agenda for this one constituency, even if I feel passionately about it. So that was a long prayerful process to make sure that I was going in with good 
honest motives for why I was called and what I was being called for. Now, when this issue comes up, I will, yeah, I think people know where I am and I've already said things to the eldership group about where I stand. So I don't think there's any mystery about all of that. Um, I'm not an aggressive person, but I am very transparent. Um, I, I, I will say what I think, but hopefully I do it in a way that's a, not very reactionary or angry. Yeah. One of the tools that we talk about on this show is um, the power of being a non-anxious presence. I think mm-hmm. the Ignatian indifference is a great example of that. You definitely lived that out on your blog. I've I've been following your blog for years, and it's it's fascinating because you are such a provocative thinker, in my opinion, uh, which therefore means you get some interesting comments on the blog. But you you seem to have a phenomenal ability to be irenic, even when people are commenting in a very um, aggressive or cheap or you know taking a shot at you. Um, is that just the way you're wired or do you have to work? Is, is there something inside your head that wants to get back at people or are you just a fairly laid back guy all the way through? I think it's a little of both. I mean, I'm definitely laid back, but I, I think it's human nature that if anybody mischaracterizes or takes a cheap shot or exposes a flaw, like that doesn't, that's not like a thorn that gets in your head and you obsess about this random anonymous person on the internet who said something about you. I think it's something about the way our brains are wired. And, and I, so over the years of blogging, I've had to learn uh, to let, let that go and realize that in the early days, you'd always want to defend yourself or add corrections or nuance. But I've gotten to the point now where I'm like, it's a blog. People disagree. It's okay that people disagree. Um, I expect people disagree. So I think I've, I've acquired thicker skin just through the just through the experiences of it all. Just the nature of it. Um, yeah. And and I also don't think if you're gonna be a provocative thinker, then you're you're provoking people. And so when they're provoked, you shouldn't act surprised by that. And so if if I write so there are there are days when I've written blog posts and I'll tell my wife and I'm like, okay, this one's gonna get a reaction. And and you kind of know that going in because you're taking a stand. Uh, but so when it happens, you know, I don't try to take it too personally. You know, you, you provoke people and, and uh, you should deal with the consequences of your actions <laughs> if you write something like that. Yeah. All right. So speaking of being provocative, I've, I've read several of your books and I, I'm currently reading Slavery of Death. And uh, it is blowing my mind, the idea that uh, – uh, death is what we're more afraid of than sin and that uh, death leads to sin rather than sin leading to death. Would you mind just setting up how you came to that for people who haven't been exposed to this idea or this book? Well, let me tell you a little autobiographically. So for me as a psychologist, I've always been fascinated by existential psychology and I've read the, the book that kind of knocked my socks off in graduate school is a book by Ernest Becker called the denial of death. And he kind of puts the fear of death as the great anxious rumbling beneath all of, um, uh, civilization and, and at the root of our psychology. And so I've, I've always found that a very compelling, uh, description of human psychology. And, and I've from then on, I've been in search of kind of theological, partners that that 
saw it similarly or make similar moves. And so I found a very hospitable theological framework in the Eastern Orthodox tradition that dates all the way back to the first centuries of the church. And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they kind of reverse the typical ordering of sin and death. So the, the Western Protestant tradition is the idea that sin is the cause and that brings about our death, spiritual, physical death. Um, and, and so Adam and Eve sin, original sin, and that brings death into the world. The Orthodox, they, they flip it. Um, they don't talk about original sin. They talk about ancestral sin, where Adam and Eve, it's true, they disobey and, and they bring death into the world. But what we inherit from Adam and Eve isn't a, a sin nature. We don't inherit a kind of congenital moral defect. What we inherit is the is mortality, the mortal. They introduce death into the world. And so unlike Adam and Eve, we are all born dying. We're all we're, we're born mortal creatures. And because of that mort mortality, there is in us a, a survival instinct. Uh, we're anxious. Uh, we want to meet our needs. We want to hoard resources. We want to um, achieve a significant life. And so that to, to deal with the anxiety, the survival anxiety. And so the idea there is that the anxiety produced by being a mortal, finite creature creates our selfishness and our, and our competitiveness and even our violence. And so in this formulation, death, more specifically the anxiety about death, um, becomes the, the cause of sin. And sin is the downstream effect. And there's biblical evidence for this um, where uh, I think it's in Corinthians that says the, the, the sting of death is sin. Um, so all that to say, that's not to deny the, the kind of, you know, Romans where it says the wages of sin is death. It's, it's to suggest that in the biblical narrative, death and sin uh, are a very complex, they're in a complex wound up causal back and forth there. And in the slavery of death is a book about kind of one piece of that connection, putting death as the primary predicament and its anxiety as, as the thing that causes moral failures in our lives. So what do you see then for the average person? If, if this is really true that that anxiety about death is the cause, like if we're rewording Paul, we'd say the wages of death is sin in this, mm -hmm. in this idea. Um, what's the hope for the average person then, do you think, to overcome that? Well, um, it's, well, uh, that's, that's a big question. <laughs> Uh, another verse here before I launch into an answer is uh, I, I put uh, Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 at the center of the book. And it talks about how Jesus comes to destroy the power of the devil, uh, which is death. And the phrase I grab a hold of is to set us free who, um, who are enslaved all our lives by the fear of death. And so the fear of death in that Hebrews text is, is the tool of the devil. And, and, and we've, our predicament is described as kind of a lifelong slavery to this fear. So well, in the book, I mean, I think just the fear manifests in, in two different ways. Uh, first of all, I would say for the, those in your audience who aren't very existentially oriented, this can kind of sound very philosophical or not very relevant. Um, when I, when I preach this message to churches, there's not like a lot of people in the audience go like, I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not afraid of death. I don't fear death. Uh, I believe in heaven. Like I don't, I don't, they don't see themselves in this description. Um, so you gotta, you gotta, you have to unpack what that, what the fear of death feels like. And so I use kind of a psychological distinction between basic anxiety and neurotic anxiety and basic anxiety is just kind of your survival 
anxiety, the anxiety of the fight or flight response. But for us, it mainly shows up in, in, in resource allocation. So people might not feel like they are under imminent threat of death. They're not facing violence or predators or anything like that. But, but if you ask people if they feel tired, exhausted, uh, depleted, ask them if they feel worried about if they have enough money to pay the bills, um, then that's basic death anxiety, right? You're, try, you're, dealing, you're monitoring the resources of life and you're coming up lacking. You don't have the energy or the time or the money to meet your needs or the needs of your loved ones. And the minute you mention fatigue or paying bills, most people start nodding and kind of go like, yeah, I feel that. I, I feel uh, that I live in a psychology of scarcity and I'm all, always managing scarcity. Uh, so that, so it often shows up in that area of our lives. The, the neurotic anxiety is, the neurotic death anxiety is more about the, the anxiety of self-esteem. It's more about the, the psychology of living a significant or a meaningful life in the face of death. Like, so what makes your life matter? What makes you successful? Uh, and why do we care? And, and if you peel that onion back far enough, why would, why would anybody care about living a meaningful, significant life? And the answer is because in the face of death, and this is, you know, um, you know, it's kind of Ecclesiastes too. We don't want everything that we've built to be washed away uh, in the face of death. We want something to last. Uh, Ernest Becker describes this as a hero project. We're always engaged in, in a, a, a form of heroism, enacting a life that is people will look at as admirable or significant. And so I talk to my students a lot about how if you just listen to any commencement address, high school or college, that's the cultural hero system, right? You're going to go out there and you're going to make this lasting difference in the world. And that makes your life heroic. And, and that neurotic anxiety hits us when we feel like we're not hitting those standards, when we feel inadequate or we feel like we're a failure, um, when we have low self-esteem or shame or guilt. So, and again, many people struggle with those anxieties as well. All that to say, um, when you talk about scarcity, depletion, exhaustion, lack of resources or safety and security financially or otherwise, or this, this the neurotic pursuit of meaning, significant self-esteem, achievement, and the pathologies of perfectionism and shame and workaholism and on and on. At that, by that point in the conversation, people start kind of discerning where the power of the devil is at work in their lives, leading them into selfishness or rivalry or competition or or uh, anxiety, um, and uh, and and so the book is about a, the slavery to those to those fears. Yeah. So as you're describing getting down from existential to people's everyday fears, I mean, you exactly described about every church leader I know. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Like that. That really the 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 pressures, the exhaustion, the. Well, the, compul the compulsion to make a difference. Yeah, well, I mean, so first of all, there's basic anxiety, right? Lots of churches are in numerical decline in a post-Christian world. And so they're managing literally the survival of the church itself. And the survival of the church itself hits them as in basic anxiety and in neurotic anxiety. In basic anxiety, that's the source of their income, right? That church fails, that affects their ability to pay their rent, send their kids to college. So there's a that's not a neurotic fear. That's like a legit resource-based fear. 
In addition, the metrics of churches, the number of people in the pews, the number of people following your podcast, whether or not you're on the speaking circuit, right? There's so many different neurotic markers of success that pastors can pay attention to. It's very, those metrics are always in front of them as they look at the people sitting in the pews on a Sunday and the contributions and that, and, and, and as they're reading books by church planners and mega churches, and they're looking at their church of 200 people and the, the, the neurotic feedback about not being good at your job or a failure um, is there as well. So, th- so they're getting pinched in both sorts of anxieties. They have financial anxieties about that struggling church. And then the fact that the church is struggling is commenting a lot about their own worthwhileness and, and significance and, and competencies. So I would, I would think um, that that would be a very anxiety inducing career. Yeah. You've been engaged with church leaders for quite a while, right? Like a, a few decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, What's new? Is is there nothing new under the sun with church leaders or are church leaders under uh, more pressure than ever before? What's your opinion on that? What are you seeing? Well, I mean, um, I don't know than ever before, but I definitely think we're in a post-Christian culture and that churches are experiencing across the board demographic declines. And that is shrinking churches uh, and, and I think that is a, I don't know if that's new, but it's definitely what's happening right now. Um, and, um, and so it is, it is, that work is getting harder and, and harder. Um, and, and I think we're all, we're all feeling it. I know, I know you said you had a lot of parents that listen to this podcast. I, I know a lot, a lot of parents feel like they're trying to, well, I said this in one of our small group, we're part of a small group at our church and we're all, um, parents of teenagers and, young college kids and, and uh, thinking about passing on the faith to them. And we find ourselves as uh, kind of evangelists to our own children. We, we are, And the, the comment I said is like, we're all missionaries in our own home, trying to persuade our children that this church thing, this Christian walk is, uh, is worthwhile. And, and it's something that we want them to participate in. And so, so there's a lot of anxiety about our children's faith in the home as well. And obviously the downstream effect is on the church because we're not keeping our young people. And that creates that demographic slide that we were talking about. So I think there's anxiety all across the board uh, from the church leaders and to the Christian parents at home. didn't grow up in the church at all so I didn't come to faith until as a teenager my my older sister became a Christian actually in a church of Christ in Australia and then she led me to faith and uh, I was in my mid-20s when I really hit a fairly solid wall of doubt I'd done my hospital chaplaincy I was in grad school doing a um, theology degree and that was then like a 10-year journey for me of orient that whole orientation disorientation reorientation What's been fascinating to me is when I went through my doubt cycle, that was early to mid-90s, there weren't many voices. There was Frederick Beekner and Philip Yancey. There were some. But raising my kids, they go through their doubt cycle in their single digits. Like eight or nine years of age is when they start. Right. 
And that's been really surprising to me. It just caught me off guard that my one of my teenagers, for example, has probably already gone through two complete orientation, disorientation, oh, right. reorientation cycles. Yeah. And we've had a lot of death and tragedy mm-hmm. in our church. He's at a very young age, he's had to deal with the fear of death. But I wasn't expecting that as a parent. I, I love what you're talking about, um, being a missionary to your own kids. But that caught me off guard. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, pervasive across the board. I, I teach a class called Psychology and Christianity, and it's kind of like my little laboratory in trying to evangelize millennials, um, trying to, every class I'm experimenting with ways to make the faith compelling, to evoke in them an ache for God. And um, it, it's it's kind of my little Petri dish of how, how to do apologetics in a post-Christian world. So, yeah. yeah uh, what do, what's what are you learning? Well, I well, one of the things I'm learning is that I, I think I kind of described a little bit. I think what you got to do with millennials is you have to help them name the ache uh, of God. I don't know if I've ever said it exactly that way, but let's go with it. Yet, right there is an ache. They they are very. Let me say this: they're very good people, millennials. And I think we all know that, like they are tolerant, they are good people. And so the moral framing that we were grown up with, that, that the reason why we need to be Christians is because we're horrible people and God needs to forgive us. I, I think that's just not a good opening move for them because in many ways, it's a disastrous opening move because in many ways, they are better people than the church has been, millennials, at least in their own imaginations, right? right? The church has been this bastion of sexism and abuse of children and, you know, uh, you know, on and on, right? Or, or attitudes towards sexual minorities, on and on. So they're like, well, when it, if, if you're going to frame the situation morally, they're like already like, well, I'm already a good person. In fact, to get attached to the church is to kind of regress morally. Yeah. So yeah. the moral opening moves that kind of maybe compelled generations past don't work anymore. But what millennials do experience is a lot of anxiety, interestingly enough. They're very anxious, very depressed. And we've seen that, right? Rates of depression and being on antidepressants and anxiety medications. So they're very good, but they're not well psychologically. They're very neurotic. And I would argue one of the sources of their neurosis is kind of feeling lost in late capitalistic culture where there isn't any sort of compelling sacred narrative that kind of gives them a grand story for their life. Sometimes they can find it in politics. It's one of the reasons why I think politics is becoming the new religion because politics can provide and the kind of energy to live a meaningful life. So if there's this neurotic vacuum that we were trying to fill with meaning and significance, politics can give you a heroic role to play. And so I think a lot's one of the reasons why I think you see millennials attracted to political activism is, is yes, they're good people, but it's also a way to get meaning out of life that has lost its sacred order. The trouble with that is, is that, that, that social justice activism can also chew you up and spit you out. Um, it, it can be a very anxiety inducing world to be in. If you make a mistake on Twitter you know, you can get expelled as a heretic by the social justice group as well. So it's a very... Yeah, we've, we've, 
we've moved back to public shaming as a culture. Yeah. So like. it's very, so even though you're doing good work out there, it's an, it's anxious work, right? You got to, yeah. you don't know who you're, you know, where you stand um, off. Well, and I'm, I'm very aware as a white man, there's a lot that I can't speak into, but it also seems like a lot of the anxiety is produced because there's no patience anymore mm -hmm. for change. It all has to be, it feels like there's, multiple more causes and multiple less time to get it right. Yeah. And, and, and when you reduce that, when you reduce it to just political activism, um, again, that creates a very competitive rivalry uh, back and forth every four years about who's going to win the next election. And that just ratchets up the anxiety about what's going to happen in the next election. So elections now are very anxiety inducing and we go up and we go down with, with joy and despair, depending on how that goes. And that just exacerbates our emotional turmoil. Anyway, all that to say is with my college students, the thing I try to do with them is I try to kind of evoke in them an ache for God or the kingdom of God, and then help them name that particular ache as the absence of God. And then the idea there being is then that can create a yearning in them for something that would fill that void. But, but if they can't name it or see it, then they can't yearn for it and they can't pursue it. And so I try to help. So I spent a lot of time trying to paint a, a vision of what they want and what the kingdom of God gives them in such a way that they go, Oh, that's a glass of cool water. You know, for me, like, Oh man, I, I want that. Um, I would, I would love, you know, that. So I try to do that. I try to track them with beauty um, rather than with a moral frame. So I try to use aesthetics and I, and I, I appeal to them emotionally um, in what they're in their, in their, I guess in their need is a way to say it. Mm. So yeah, I try to evoke an ache for God in them. And I, I'm not mm. saying I do that well. It's, it's just, like I said, what I'm experimenting with. Yeah. It reminds me of a friend of mine uh, named Brian Mavis. He, he says, you have to decide if the gospel is a boxing match or a beauty contest. Oh, I like that. And yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really oh. good. And that's what you're saying. It's the most beautiful story wins. And it is a beautiful story that got, you know, the, the freedom in Christ is magnificent, but yeah, you're right. It's the church. Unfortunately, even as we speak, the, the amount of stories coming out about church abuse is legion. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. horrifying. Well, all this talk about anxiety and death, these are good times. Um, <laughs> Such a feel good podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I do. I make people, you know, I'm just not happy Unless everyone's miserable, uh, yeah. then I yeah I feel better. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned the Ignatian uh, indifference. Is there another just uh, tool or technique you use that really helps you either lower your own anxiety or when you notice it in a group, help de-escalate someone else's anxiety? I mean, the, the big move I make in the slavery of death because earlier you talked about what is the what's the hope for this. Mm. Um, in my, in my blog recently, I've described this as kind of the choice we all face which is kind of neurosis or grace and uh, what i mean by that is um if your self-esteem and your significance is a hero project um, something you have to earn or perform for um you're you're, you're condemning your whole life to this neurotic pursuit you're either going to be winning or losing 
Um, and even winning is anxiety inducing because we don't win, you know, you're winning until you're not anymore. You're winning until you sh- your church stops growing um, or you're winning until you're shamed by the person who's outperforming you. I mean, even the winners are very anxious. Um, so it's a role. So it's a roller coaster ride. So you're either going to kind of play that game where every day is work to earn your significance or you accept that as an act of grace. And, and that might seem very trivial, but I really think that's the secret to of kind of what happens to Jesus at his baptism is that he kind of receives his identity as God's beloved. And then he begins his work, but he begins with that identity. You are loved and he operates out of that core. And I think that's why Jesus was a non-anxious presence because in any given interaction, he had, he did not have to compete or perform in that interaction to win. He was never trying to win anything. He's, he'd already kind of won because of, because of the Father. And so nothing was at stake in, in, in the situation. So he didn't have to impress that person in front of him or, or name drop or give them their business card or have that neurotic tape playing his, in his head like, you know, um, you know, what are they thinking about me? Am I looking like an idiot? you like, like he was the most, he wasn't neurotic in that sense. And I think it was because he was operating out of a sense of identity. And the trouble is we kind of know that intellectually, we know that, but I don't know if many of us actually feel it in our somatically, like in our deeply in the limbic systems of our brain. I think most of us are operating out of our amygdala. And so they're there for every situation is triggering these threat responses, these emotional threat. And that's where the anxiety comes from. So I don't know if grace has healed our brains yet. Like we know we're God's child and we're beloved in the frontal cortex. Like it's an intellectual proposition for us, but for it to seep down to where it is impacting anxiety in the deep emotional structures of the brain that's the that to me is the hard part people are christians cerebrally but they're not christians with their amygdala (laughs) that's the weirdest thing i've ever said but does that make sense oh yeah it makes a ton of sense so that my two reactions are uh in my life i'm a pastor um my ongoing lifelong challenge is the battle between being God's employee and God's child, which is exactly what you just laid out. And, uh, and the, second, the second thing I've come to decide is the, the problem with grace is we talk about it so much we think we have it. Like we just, by, by talking about it, we believe we've experienced it. Um, but for me, I'll, I guess I'll testify, it's a daily huh. work to exactly what you're describing to integrate my identity in Christ deep into my corpuscles, uh, I can't think my way there. I have to use rhythms and activities to, to yeah. remember. Yeah, and that's what I've told. That's what I tell my students. I go worship, prayer, going to church, spiritual disciplines. He goes, I say, they're all disciplines of memory. You're trying to remember who you are and who you are because you forget. You know, you go out in the world of work, you go out in the world of the American dream, the meritocracy, the rat race, 
and you immediately forget. And so you need the disciplines, the daily rituals of memory and the community of faith to kind of help you recover again, again, this thing you forget so, so easily. Um, so I like, the, I, like, I like your word about to remember. It's all about memory, remembering who we are. I believe anxiety uh, begins physiologically, or at least if you can detect it physiologically, that's where you start. And so it's typically either in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Where would it first start in your life? Hmm. I think I think it's a spinning mind. I, th- I think most of it comes to me in, in, a, in a race and a train of thoughts for me. I think I carry anxiety pretty well somatically. So I don't necessarily feel my body first, but I do, I do, I do, my, my, my mind gets out in front of me in the kind of feared ca- catastrophizing scenarios. Yeah. And if, if you're more of a cerebral anxious person, how do people around you know when you're anxious? Um, well, my wife would say my face, <laughs> like like she's going to detect it because I'm thinking. It's not like I'm doing anything or or saying anything that's going like, oh, he's fretting. But it's like she she could tell on my face that something's going on in my mind. So it's usually usually people draw attention to my face, um, it, it, you know. And so I guess I'm betraying myself with my with my looks. Yeah, you don't have a you have a poker body, but not a poker face. Apparently, apparently. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think another source of anxiety is when, in any given moment, we think we need something that we don't actually need. And you've hinted at this quite a bit in in our discussion. But can you name for us something that you think you need in any given moment, in any given leadership moment, that you actually don't need? I'd be happy to give an example if this is a weird question. Yeah, give me an example. Yeah, so I I believe fundamentally that I need to be impressive. Oh, okay. Uh, that I need people to like me. And I would say one of my biggest sources of anxiety is I need to be understood. So if somebody misunderstands me, my solution is just to talk more, you know. Uh, and that's because I'm trying to get what I need, but I actually don't need that. And so I can de-escalate my anxiety by naming it, dying to it. And actually, that for me is where I do encounter the visceral experience of grace that, you know, Jesus died to free me from needing to be understood anymore. That would be a long-winded example. Yeah, unfortunately, I want to borrow that example, which seems like I'm bailing. Um, but, you know, on, on, on the answer, because um, I, I do think I over, I over, I have a similar habit of over-talking and over-explaining um, myself. And I, and I think also, or at least early on, particularly in my marriage, I was addicted to kind of like, not just being understood, but like winning the argument. And so I've had to die to, to like winning, like it's, it's okay to, and that like goes back to the, my anxieties about the blog. Like it's, it's okay for somebody out there to think I'm wrong and not feel like I have to be clear that, 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 that I'm right about this, um, or, or I was misunderstood about it. So I think I've had to die to that. I don't need to win and I don't need to be universally admitted to being 
right all the time is, has been things I've had to die to. You know, that's interesting. I, I'm going to put myself out there and propose that that must have been quite a journey for you. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but you are obviously a very deep and nuanced thinker. Like you really put a lot of deep and particular thought into things. It must be particularly difficult when somebody brings a shallow response and they just haven't thought it through very hard for you to let it go rather than give them more nuance. Is that accurate? Oh, that is very insightful beyond accurate. (laughs) I think, I, I think, yeah. One of my big struggles, particularly, you know, in these conversations is somebody after you put a lot on a lot of work and you've thought through it for a very long time. And I think people that have read my blog for a long time know who I am. And then for somebody to just kind of randomly come in and kind of like, ed, like school me on something or educate me on something or point out just the obvious flaw in what I said, um, you know, like, like that, yeah, that, that drives me crazy because <laughs> I, th- I think I felt like I've thought that through long enough. And, and so, yeah, that, and, and so to give up, rushing in and trying to demonstrate to this person that, you know, they are the ones that have misread me or, and and I think that's also the biggest frustration on my blog is when people don't read what you wrote, like they read it and and they criticize you and you're like, I, I, I I qualified that up there in the second paragraph. Like I, I said, I'm not trying to say this. And, And so it, that, that, drives me crazy too because there's this comment out there where that that basically says in so many words that you're an idiot or you're wrong and you want to delete it but it's just going to sit out there i guess for all eternity you know and and you just got to go well it's all right you know there'll be a comment out many comments out there where people you know and i worry i guess about the opinion of other people what if somebody else reads that and then they think well i guess this guy that doesn't know what he's really thinking so yeah the whole it can get very neurotic Blogging is very neurotic. Well, especially when you're a psychologist because you know the way people think. And so if you're writing a long and nuanced blog, but someone leaves a really short comment, people are going to read that short comment and then read through that comment back into your blog sometimes. Oh, yeah. I don't mean mean to add to your neurosis. No, no, I've had to give that up. Yeah, and yeah, and that, again, you have to reconcile yourself to that. You're like, blogging is kind of a vain thing. You know, uh, why would anybody care about what I think or read what I think? And so you, you have to you have to take yourself with a big grain of salt to to get into that. If you're gonna right. if you're gonna do it in a healthy way. Well, and I I think you know you're a PhD psychologist, so I'm I'm just declaring what you know to be true. Blogging is vain, and podcasting is very humble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. It can be no, but you know how this is, right? You're getting into podcasting and you, you got a book out there and, and there are metrics. How many people right. download it, how many people watch it, and right. you have your Amazon rank and, and you can you can get again, you can start playing that neurotic hero game. How am I and at some point you have to you have to go you have to look at yourself and go, really, my significance is gonna go up or down depending on how many people listen to this podcast or read my blog. Um, how silly is that? Yeah. But it's hard because again, let's go back disciplines of memory. You got to go back and remember what really gives you significance. Another classic source of anxiety, particularly for a leader, also a parent is um, making a public mistake. 
And I'm, I don't, I'm not talking about uh, the kinds of mistakes where a lawyer or a police officer should be involved. I, I just mean you meant well and you got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you willing to share for us a recent mistake you made and what you had to do to recover from it? I think we were in a difficult negotiation um, at my school, and I wrote an email. So is, is an email in front of other people? Is that public enough? So it wasn't like, oh, yeah. It wasn't, an, it wasn't an, an oral mistake. It was I wrote an email to my superiors that – uh, at the end, I didn't. I, I didn't rant, but I, I, I did something. <laughs> I won't go into the details, but I, I, it was a little over the top. Um, and I was very proud of this email because I felt like I had kind of made this big rhetorical, taken this big rhetorical stand. And I remember vividly. Normally, I've gotten better at this over the years. I used to write emails and regret them horribly. And and so I hadn't written one of these in a long time. And usually I let my wife read them. Anyway, so she came in and I said, hey, listen to this email. And I read it to her. And then she said, and you already sent that. And at that point, (laughs) point I realized, "Uh uh-oh. And I go, I did. She goes, okay, well, good. And she just kind of went on. I was like, oh, I made a mistake. And so, um, and it didn't go well. It wasn't received well. Um, woke up the next morning and I had a response in my inbox that just, you know, it wasn't the response I wanted. And I was taken, yeah, it just did, you know, the, the concerns my wife had were legitimate. Let's just put it that way. And so I had to, I had to, I, so I, I quickly drafted an apology and just kind of said that, you know, um, anyway, so yeah. And I've, I've made mistakes with my son. I've, 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 I've you know, uh, in a disciplinary situation, maybe maybe it was too harsh or too quick in making a judgment. Um, but I think my sons—I got two sons. One's in college. One's a senior in high school. I, I think I think they have ample stories of dad apologizing. I think I'm quick to apologize and kind of go. I think I screwed that up. So I apologize a lot, and I apologize in that email. I apologize to my wife. I, I, that's you you can't not you can't the way I like to tell it to Jana is like you can't get through life without spilling some milk. You're going to make mistakes and you're going to say stupid things and and uh, and uh, so so all you can do is mend mend them. You know you you just try to st- stitch back the fabric that you tore and ripped um, and put and uh, and often for me that's that initially begins with a very sincere like I blew it um, on that. And so, in fact, I apologized to my wife this morning. We had a little tiny misunderstanding and I, uh, had to say I was sorry. So I, I do a lot of apologizing. <laughs> that's my main technique of fixing. You know, I apologize a lot. Yeah, and that's a good word. I try not to, cause I think some people don't want to apologize cause that, you know, but I am I, at this point in my life, I've gotten very quick to apologize for saying, I just really made a mistake there. This podcast, you know, we spend half of our time talking about internal anxiety. We spend half of our episodes talking about group anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, could you give us an example of where you've seen anxiety escalate in a group? Like our theory is that uh, groups catch anxiety the way you catch a cold. It's highly contagious. Mm-hmm. And if a leader is able to pay attention to that as much as they're paying attention to the agenda in a meeting, they can actually get a lot further where have you seen anxiety catch catch on in a group? Oh my gosh. 
I, I work at a university. I mean, they're like highly anxious. They, I mean, because universities are like the big struggle with universities is that it's an it's like an it's a resource allocation problem. You have all of these little republics, like so. I'm in the Department of Psychology, but there's a Department of History, and a Department of Physics, and a Department. And then there's these different colleges: colleges of business, college of Bible, and so you have all these constituencies, and they're all very egocentric in the sense of like what they're doing and the work that they're doing is the most important work. And then you have administrators who allocate resources, and so, and again, in in, in a culture of scarcity. There isn't enough resources to go around, so they have to make hard choices. And so higher education is a very anxious, and, and it's also a distressed industry right now because the competition between universities and, and concerns about student lo load and uh, student uh, debt load is, is a big deal. And so it's a very anxious industry. And then at the local campus level, it's it's a culture of scarcity, you know, every penny that goes to another department, I feel like should have come to my department and aren't we doing all these good things? And so I don't know if you've ever been on a college campus, but they're just, a, you know, faculty are just neurotic basket cases. And the rivalries between administration and faculty is just awful because again, right, you're resentful that like, like you're the faculty member, you're, you're, you're the rock star. You're like, you're the reason the school exists, right? In the classroom. And then there's this, administrator who exists in another building and, and they're not going to give you the pennies that you need to do your job. And so there's inherent in this relationship to administration faculty, a, a suspicion and a paranoia and a distrust. And, and then, and then if things are scarce or tight and budgets are tight and faculty are being let go or departments are might close down and you're watching your majors to plummet and you're, you know, and, Oh yes. So I live in a world of anxiety so how do you deal with it? Well, you know that email I, I told you I wrote about, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote that email was because things were happening administratively that, that could potentially threaten, right, my department. It's, um, and I had to, as a leader, I had to absorb a lot of anxiety. It was a really hard week. I, I dealt with a week of walking through these conversations with administrators in a lonely kind of way because because I, I wasn't going to just kind of show up in my department and like light my hair on fire and go you know the world's coming to an end and we should all you know lock the doors and batten the hatches and I had to process a lot of that anxiety alone so that when it those negotiations kind of landed I could come to my faculty in a very non-anxious way and help them because they were going to be anxious when I laid it all out there. But, but I had already processed my anxiety and, and had answers and, and felt like I had done due diligence to make sure that the situation was a good situation for us as best we could get. Um, so, so I, I, yeah, I think one of the things I try to do as a leader, I think my department is, is one of the more non-anxious. I probably shouldn't say this because people in my campus are going to listen to this podcast, but I think the psychology department, is known for being kind of a very non-anxious department. And I think it's because I try to be honest with my faculty and I'll say, if there's something to worry about, I'll tell you if there's something to worry about. But if it's just, if this is just neurotic gossiping and threats and you're like, 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 like I'm not, let's, let's not waste our time worrying about things that don't exist. Let's not, 
be anxious about phantoms. And so I will not, as a department, I don't traffic in phantoms. I said, I will give you the facts as I know them. When I hear something, I will tell you. But until that happens, you focus on the students, you do your job. And today we have good work to do. Who knows what tomorrow's going to bring? But today, stay focused on your classroom and your job. That's what I'm doing. That's what you should do. And tomorrow we'll see what happens. And so I think that's the best thing I can do for a leader is keep people grounded in empirical reality. <laughs> um, when you live in a culture of kind of neurotic fantasy um, and threats, that's, that's to me the, heart, the, the thing I have to help my people do. Richard, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Well, I think there's a couple places. I mean, I feel I have a good marriage, and so I'm grateful for that. And so just whenever I'm with Jana, I'm, so I'm, I'm great. And I realize that that's not everybody's story. And so I'm, I'm glad I have a good partner. But I also fill it out at the prison. Every Monday night, I teach a Bible study for about 50 inmates at a maximum security prison. And, and they, man, they're just so grateful that we come out there. That, that when I walk in those doors, um, the, the, the reception they give us week in, week out is a real blessing. I feel deeply loved when I'm with them. And um, that Monday nights with, out of prison is a spiritual high point for me. And, and I'm also a bit of a mystic. Like, I kind of feel like the love of God is everywhere. And, and a key practice is opening oneself up to it. And so um, I feel it a lot, actually. I think grace is always at hand. Like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in your midst. I think it's always there. And I, and I think practicing the presence of God is, as that has been described in the Christian tradition is, is becoming an increasing part of my life. So I feel it almost all the time in, 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 in a certain mystical kind of way uh, because of that memory stuff that we were talking about earlier. Could you give us a couple of activities and a couple of geographical places that make you feel most fully alive. <laughs> this goes to the point I just made. Okay. Because I resist questions like that because I always feel that when people kind of put the presence of God in a location, they all, they often gravitate towards that kind of like thin space, that mountaintop experience, that beach vacation. So I have this joke I don't know if you've read this blog post, but, but when, when my friends tell me like, you know, we were in Hawaii for this vacation and my, you know, they're taking the Instagram photo of their, their feet in the sand in the, the beach. And, you know, I was like, you know, God is here. And I was like, th I said, that feeling you're feeling, that's not God. It's called vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I, I, I really think I really resist feeling God because it makes you dissatisfied with where you are, right? Like where I am is the problem. There's this other place that I must get to or go to or be drawn to. And so maybe that's not quite the framework of your question, but I, I do, I do bristle a, a lot at um, finding God in, and uh, so I'm a big practicer finding God in the boring and the ugly and the mundane. And so, uh, Maybe I'm maybe you know, I'm defensive about this because I live in Abilene, Texas. I don't know if you're in Abilene, but Abilene is not noteworthy for being pretty. Yeah, I live in Colorado. Yes, and so there's lots of people that bristle at Abilene. Like God can't ever be in this godforsaken country, you know, land that I live in. You got to go to Colorado, right? Or you got to get to the got to get to water. 
Are you a fan of Annie Dillard, Richard? You know, I haven't read Annie. I mean, obviously I know who she is, but I haven't read her a lot, you know. That, I mean, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, 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 I guess one of my, if I was going to talk about like secrets to happiness, I, I, I struggle with wanting what I call like living into the gap. Like there's the life I have, and then there is the life I want, right? So there is the place I'd rather live. I don't want to live here in Appley, and I'd rather live in Colorado. Or there is this job I have, but then there's the job that is going to ultimately fulfill me. Or you know, I, I just went on a long like talk with that, my students about that just the other day about how we kind of fill them, particularly in Christian education, that somehow you're going to get this job that's going to be this deeply fulfilling. But God, the reason God put you on earth his plan for you is for you to have this job where your great love and your, your, your ability to pay the rent meet. And I was like, how rare is that? That hardly ever happens. You know, people have to work, but, but, and so if you can't ever reconcile yourself to the mundane work of the day, then you're always going to be living. I was trying to tell them that you're always living to this gap, the day you had and then the day you wanted to have. And so I try to minimize that gap a great deal in my life. I try to want the day I currently have. And, and that means I find God everywhere and in every location. Um, even if I'm standing in line at the supermarket, like that has got to be the, a beautiful moment. Otherwise, I'm going to just be resentful of where I live and the job I have and, and yearn for this other, other thing or other place. So I, I'm very so, and, and again, this isn't just Christian. So this would be kind of in the Eastern spiritualized. This is like mindfulness, being present in the in the moment. Um, so uh, I try not to long for being anywhere other than where I currently am. And maybe I, I don't mean to be hard on that question. And maybe I didn't take it right, but that's kind of I resist those questions. I think it's a I think it's a delightful answer. <laughs> Uh, I also think it's a, that was my last question. I think it's a great one to end on. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. For more, go to managingleadershipanxiety.com. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.